Welcome back. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, I do thank you, and I praise you for the gift of another day. I thank you for all the ways that you shower down your graces upon us, your mercies that rescue us, Lord, from harm and danger, that set us free from the bondage of sin and death. Jesus, shepherd us through our day today. Protect us from the wolves, especially the wolves in sheep's clothing, Lord. And Lord, I ask that you would anoint us from within, cause a surge of grace to emerge within our own lives, Lord, that we would honor you in all that we say, think, and do. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yesterday on the program, I had part one of insights drawn from my trip to the West Side. And last week, I had a chance to speak at St. Monica's to parents from the parish, but principally coming from their classical grade school, now growing into actually the high school level as well. And then on Friday, speaking to the faculty, the students, and then to the parents and families uh, at um, Our Lady Star of the Sea on Friday night. And it was a really awesome evening there. About 250 folks come out on Friday night. And I'm going to be sharing with you some of the themes that came from that talk in particular. Now, you're going to have to put on your, your thinking hats because I'm going to go a little bit deeper into the meaning of truth and beauty and goodness as it is relayed in the classical tradition, especially in our uh, in the light of our heritage of faith, the great inheritance of faith that we get um, as, uh, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus. And I want to bring that out into the open for you all. Um, if you remember yesterday, I was talking about Um, This is an Elijah moment, a Benedict moment, and a Joseph moment. So Elijah in 1 Kings, he's facing the prophets of Baal, and he says to to the Israelites, how long will you straddle the issue if the Lord is God, follow him, if Baal, follow him? And my proposal is, hear it again, please hear it again. This is an Elijah moment. You can't straddle the issue any longer. You can't just simply be a faith, a faithful, a faithful Washingtonian, and a faithful Christian. You can't. You just can't. Uh, the, the 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 separation has become so painfully apparent and great in all of the issues that relate to the person, the family, sex and sexuality, sexual identity and marriage, beginning of life issues with abortion, end of life issues with. Um, Uh, physician-assisted suicide. You can't simply align yourself with the laws and policies in the state of Washington and be a faithful Catholic Christian disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, You may have been able to do that in a large measure 30 years ago. That time is gone. You don't get to choose the moment in which you live. God has planted you in this moment. It's an Elijah moment. How long will you straddle the issue? It's a Benedict moment. St. Benedict, you remember, you have the collapse of the Roman Empire, and if they're going to rebuild a Christian culture, if they're going to rebuild a culture rooted in faith, they need to step apart from the wreckage that's around them, the barbarian hordes (laughs) that have invaded, around them. You've got to step apart in order to build a density of relationships that are intentional, that realize that half measures are not going to get it done, that if you just stay in the places where you are, you're not going to get it done. It's going to require more, so no half measures. So the Benedict option is all about saying it takes intentionality in a no half measures way in order to foster a culture a culture rooted in our common faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a Joseph moment, the Joseph moment. Joseph, as the leader, provider, and protector of the Holy Family, he could see the signs that Herod was coming to slaughter the baby Jesus. And being able to sense the message of the angel, he took his wife, the Blessed Mother Mary, he took baby Jesus, and they fled to Egypt. And that's what's happening in our time is the slaughter of innocence. You can see it in public schools with the comprehensive sexuality education program and so many other things happening that are coming principally through the the the, the different uh, sources on the internet that are just washing over, sowing into the lives of our kids and just destroying them. And so wherever it is that you call Egypt, you need to flee to your Egypt Flee to your Egypt. Your Egypt might be St. Monica's or Mercer Island. It might be um, at uh, Our Lady Star of the Sea in Bremerton. It might be at um, uh, a co-op community, a homeschool co-op community. Um, it, wherever it is, or it, it might mean actually getting up and moving, right? For us, that's what it meant. And so um, we 
that we are not hiding. No, we're doing what Joseph did to lead, provide, and protect his baby Jesus. That's what we're here for, to raise up our kids so that they can stand in faith, stand up, speak out, push back in a world that is so often telling Christians and Catholics, sit down, be quiet, and go away. No, the answer is we won't do that. But we need places to go, places to send our kids where they can grow to be men and women of faith, men and women of God, men and women who strive for holiness, strive with generosity, strive to do mighty things for God. And that's what we found at the Oaks. Um, We have seen it as well at the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame, the Oaks Classical Christian Academy I'm talking about, which is K through 12. St. Charles is amazing what's happening there in Spokane. And then I was over on the West Side to support the wonderful efforts happening at St. Monica's and Our Lady Star of the sea. I could give a shout out to what's happening in St. Mark's and Shoreline as well, and so many other wonderful places. And you know what's happening? These places are full. They're getting full. Families are coming, flocking, moving to these locations because they know that they're going to encounter other families who are, what, intentional and realize that in order to raise a child in faith, half measures won't get it done. Ordinary efforts are not going to get it done. And so I mentioned at the beginning of the program a big shout out to Sarah. Uh, She is a classmate to my son John Luke in ninth grade, part of a wonderful family. I tease her dad and mom because they're utterly teasable, but I admire them. Uh, And uh, uh, her dad is the coach to my two boys playing soccer. And um, it was it's it was really powerful to have him get up, and this is what happens on the uh, orientation to athletics. You come and the, and the coaches get to um, describe their philosophy of how they're going to coach uh, the boys or the girls, depending on the sport. So, um, you know, whether it's cross country or soccer or volleyball um, or, um, yeah, those are the sports <laughs> in the fall. Uh, and, and to be able to hear the vision, uh, it's a vision rooted in faith. And I, I can remember how moved I was and how moved uh, this other new Catholic family that had just come into the Oaks, uh, how they were as well when they, when they heard um, Ryan get up and share about his philosophy of coaching, about how uh, he was going to challenge these young men to step up, uh, take responsibility, to give their all. Um, and he was going to show them uh, uh, in a loving way uh, how to... Uh, be their very best on the soccer field, but to be men of God in the midst, to grow them in their Christian character. And it was beautiful, talking about scripture, talking about um, faith. And then to see how he does that on the field was also uh, very powerful. Um, and he did, I, I, I'm i only going to say the story because I, I said I would, and it, it's, it's kind of cute. Uh, he is uh, a, a determined coach, wants to win, but he cares more about the boys, that they're going to be um, competitive, but they're going to also be safe. And if some player on the other team is going to come in with their cleats up and put um, one, of the, uh, one of the Oaks boys in physical uh, harm's way, then he is going to let the refs know just how he feels. And so he did that uh, the, on the first game of the season. And it was, it was clear to the refs he was upset that that player had done that and, and actually had the potential of causing real harm to one of the uh, players on the Oaks. And what was so moving to me was afterwards he came over to the parents and he, he asked for forgiveness. He asked for forgiveness of the, the parents for, um, for um, responding so strongly to the ref um, about what the, what the player had done. And, um, and that was, what a beautiful example. Like, what a beautiful example of saying, you know, I'm going to be accountable. I'm going to own this. Um, but he did say, look, I did it out of this passionate care he had for the boys to, to protect them, to keep them safe. And so I share that with you just as one example among a hundred. And you've heard me share a hundred, a hundred stories from the Oaks and from the Chesterton Academy. And, and I'm going to share more stories today coming from St. Monica's and Our Lady Star of the Sea that God is at work in a very special way in these classical schools, these schools that have turned to a classical model of education. And it's because 
of the degree of intentionality, the degree of commitment, the focus on discipleship that happens at these schools, and the rigor that happens to form these kids who go through a classical mode of education. I'm telling you, if you haven't encountered this, either in a homeschooling situation, a co-op situation, or in one of the classical schools or the hybrids that are out there, check it out. It is worth considering. It is worth just seeing for yourself. And in fact, today, I'm going to dig further into that. I want to share with you more. I just started in the last segment of the of the previous program, the last segment around the way that um, the classical school focused on the trivium really um, honors the nature that God has created. God has created us male and female, and he created us to be human beings that have a memory and an intellect and a will, a memory, reason, and will. And there are ages and stages that are more associated with learning in accord with one of those um, one of those faculties, one of those powers that we have. And that's what shows up in the trivium. The trivium are essentially, it's this mode of educating that happens to kids at a certain age and stage in their life. And so the three stages of the trivium, think of these three ways, the three ways, the trivium, are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Grammar is all about learning the rules. It's kind of like, you heard me say the example of if you're going to learn to play basketball or play the violin, there's certain rules. Here's how you hold the violin. This is the bow. This is how it makes noise across a string. Here are the strings. Here's how you tune the strings. Um, here's the proper stance of holding it. Now, here are the way that you can practice some chords, right? Basketball, the same thing. Here's the dimensions of the court. Here's how high the basket is. Here's how you shoot the ball. Here's how you dribble. Here are the rules of play. You can have five players on a team, etc., etc. Here are the positions. And, and so grammar is all about using memory, memorization, and all kinds of memorization techniques whether it's uh, facts in history or math, et cetera, that, that focus on getting kids where they're at to learn in accord with the level of formation and the stage they are as human beings. And you've heard me tell stories about the amazing things that my kids have memorized at very young ages, the books of the Bible in order, et cetera. Then you get to the logic stage, and the logic stage is more about reason. And, and so think about it on the basketball court. The reason is, okay, how are we going to score here? How do, we, how do we win against this team? What's the best play for us to do right now? What are we really good at? What are they not so good at? What are they good at? How do we defend against that? So reason is about figuring out the right way to use these rules within the rules, figuring out the right way to get to the goal. And so uh, that's simply put, right? But I'm going to dig further into that as I talk about the nature of truth. And then lastly is, is rhetoric, and, and that's in the high school years, the later years of high school. It's about the will and, how to, and, the, and using the emotions and, and um, moving people, moving them to uh, embrace the positions that you're taking, that you've reasoned to. They're, they're not fallacious, right? They're, they're not marked by a fallacy or an error um, or thinking that's not unclear. And so uh, in basketball, that's about playing with grace, playing with beauty, right? If you ever see basketball players who play at that amazing level, you'll just say, whoa, did you see that? That's amazing. Or a better example is on the violin. If you want to see exactly what I mean, um, look up a, a YouTube channel. I don't recommend YouTube channels often. This YouTube channel is these two uh, Asian guys from Australia called Two Set. And uh, these two guys, they will review violin players and they'll interview violin players and they'll take a look at different uh, pieces of music set for violin. And um, they have a couple of videos that will say, this, there's proof that aliens exist. This guy, there's no way that this guy is a human being if he can play this. And then they cut to this section where this guy's playing um, um, uh, a piece of music by Mozart. And as they are playing it, um, it is, it just blows them away. And, and they are just like, no, <clears throat> excuse me. And the thing that it speaks to is the reality of beauty and appreciation and understanding what you're seeing and how these two like uh, advanced violin players they see so much more in that little video clip of this violinist playing this piece of um, music by Mozart. And they're like, no, 
if you don't play the violin, you don't get it. You just don't get it. You don't understand what you're seeing here. It's unbelievable. And I can just look at it and just like, nah. oh yeah, he's playing this song. I guess it's pretty cool. And the point is, I don't get it. I don't get it because I haven't immersed myself in the reality of violin playing. I don't have an appreciation for it. No scientist can, can um, taking a scientific way of looking at things, come to appreciate that. It's only someone who's immersed themselves in that reality. I'll pick up on this theme in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. Just before the break, I was referencing the point where I ended yesterday's program where I was talking about a classical method of educating. And you don't have to go to a Catholic school for this. You can get this just by reading certain kinds of books. So for instance, if uh, what I'm going to talk about now is that concept of appreciation. If you want to understand what it's like to read a book that is written on the basis of this, read the book Who is Man by Abraham Heschel. Who is Man by Abraham Heschel. His writing is so profound, insightful, and beautiful. And yet the way he writes is utterly, it's not only philosophical, it's its beautifully um, rooted in faith as well, uh, his Jewish faith, but it's rooted in his faith in God. And it manifests itself in, in just stunning ways. It has had such a profound impact on my life, that one book, Who is Man? But the point I was bringing up at the end of the last program is today, most people are presented with the idea that knowledge, all knowledge, or the authentic path to knowledge is through science, scientists, and the methods of science, which takes a way of relating to the object of study as standing at a distance. Let me stand apart from it. Let me observe it. Let me theorize uh, or propose some hypothesis about what it is that's happening there. And then I'm going to experiment and test, come up with the result, and then I'm going to match it against the theory that I had in mind, and then continue to refine that process until I come up with a conclusion that is replicatable by this method. So the method of science is one, just hold on to this idea of standing apart from something and looking at it, and then gaining more and more information about that until I can refine through doubting my conclusion. Let me keep doubting it until it can become so refined that I end up with something that is the fact of the matter. This is the way it is. And that is something that uh, today is just presented to us as, if not the only way of coming to true knowledge, the privileged way of coming to true knowledge. Well, when you engage in classic texts and texts that are related to and flow from the classical tradition of education, you're going to be presented with texts that take a different standpoint, one that complements and supplements the scientific standpoint. And that's the standpoint of the philosopher, the one who stands in wonder before an object, who isn't standing over it to analyze it the way that a scientist would and, and to, um, to slice it up into little pieces and see if I can um, um, break it all apart and then master it throughout, through my inquiry. But rather, I await with a sense of reverence and respect I stand with wonder before this object so that the inner riches of it, the depths of it, the inner structure of it, the depth, the dimension of it will begin to emerge more fully. Now, I just spoke in a way there that sounds very foreign to most people. It just does. Most people don't, they hear that and they're like, okay, you're either sounding obscure, abstract, maybe poetic. Uh, maybe philosophical, but I don't get it. I don't get it. And so the way that I try to help like educate or, or form people to be understanding the power and importance of taking a philosophical standpoint, the standpoint of the spectator, of the philosopher, the one who proceeds by way of wonder or appreciation, is by um, 
taking a look at human examples in life, for instance, think about parents who are who have a newborn baby asleep in the crib, and they go and they stare at the baby. Now, the scientists would go stare at the baby and say, based on what I see in my observations, the baby's heart is probably beating at about 120 beats per minute. The baby is sleeping at a 45-degree angle vis-a-vis the side of the crib. The baby's uh, uh, is taking about 64 breaths per minute because I counted. I can tell the baby probably weighs about between 11 and 12 pounds based on the uh, impressions made in the mattress. And uh, I can see that the baby is probably about four weeks old based on size and weight uh, that I'm... Okay, is that what... Who does that? Not a mom and a dad. (laughs) Not a mom and a dad. But that's a way of standing in front of the object, this object that is a baby. If you stood before that object that in a scientific way, you're going to observe and identify all of those different aspects. Now, did you come up with correct facts, correct uh, uh, ideas about the, the baby? Absolutely. Do, do you get the essence of who that baby is through that? No. Are you missing something about that baby if, if that's all you come away with? Yeah. Like the most important things. No, mom and dad come and they look at the baby and they're like, it's little Ruthie. It's little Ruthie. And they will gaze upon Ruthie with love. And they'll just watch that baby breathe. And they'll stare in awe and wonder at the miracle of this little baby. And, and they are connected to this baby. They know the baby's story. Maybe there's a story to the baby's um, conception or, or time of, of uh, pregnancy before the baby came to birth or, or the birth itself. Uh, maybe they know that earlier that day that little Ruthie was upset and now she's sleeping comfortably. Maybe they can see the little look on the face. And, and let me just say this. What really matters, the heart of the matter about this little baby, the preciousness, the dignity, the worth, the specialness of this little child is not seen by the scientist. The scientist just sees this baby as one baby among many babies, as one instance among many. It's the philosopher. It's the, what, it's the one who enters into personal knowledge, the one that enters into union with that object, in this instance, the baby, that comes to know more about this baby than the scientist ever will. And so there, there's that dimension of knowing. There's that entire dimension of knowing that we want to promote and foster as authentically human and as good and true and beautiful for the formation of our kids. You see, the, the classical model of education is, is related to what the liberal arts, the liberal arts, and liberal, as, as I said to you yesterday, is traced back to a word that means freedom. It's about helping our kids flourish, and they'll flourish when they're taught in accord with the truth about who they are as human beings, and how a classical mode of educating can help them do that. And so I want to dive into the nature of truth and goodness and beauty and end up with freedom. Just to give you a, a sense of the riches that are available in a classical school and, and in pursuing a classical mode of educating. And again, this if, if you're like, I don't have kids, it doesn't apply to me, you can engage in a classical mode of educating by reading the texts that flow from this. And I want to share with you some of the fruits of what will come to your life when you do this, okay? Some of the fruits that will come to your life as you engage in this. And so you're gonna, you'll benefit it right now, just in, in what I have to share about, for instance, truth. Well, most people, why is it important to know what is true? Well, it's important to know what is true because we live in an age of propaganda. We live in an age where people are saying stuff, and you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. There's something that just sounds wrong there, but I can't name what it is. Or you might listen to propaganda and say, wait a minute, that doesn't follow. That's a logical fallacy. Wait a minute, you are, (laughs) you're begging the question. No, wait a minute, you are presuming what you set out to prove. Hey, wait a minute, this is an an ad hominem argument. You're going to... If you can learn about logical fallacies, you'll be able to recognize when people are speaking in ways that, you know, you're saying a lot of words. You're trying to be persuasive here, but your words, they're equivocations. 
or they're, they're lacking in clarity. They're lacking in concision. They're lacking in precision. And so, you know what? You're not actually saying much. You're saying words that are supposed to mean something, but it's not having an impact because I'm not sure you know what they actually mean. These are the kinds of things that you'll be attuned to. These are the things that you will improve in as you read texts and engage with texts and engage in these great conversations with others on the basis of these wonderful texts that any one of us can access. Any one of us. It, they aren't, you know, you might find lists of them that are used in Catholic schools or great books programs or classical schools, but nothing stops you from accessing these on your own. Like, read the sonnets of Shakespeare, right? The beauty that will wash over you, that'll be sewn into you by reading the sonnets of William Shakespeare. Read great, listen to great pieces of music, box, mass, and B minor. Let it wash over you. Let it sink into you. Um, look at beautiful works of art, great masterpieces of art, and, and, um, and have something to help you understand what it is that is being portrayed there. Right? So many options to put yourself in front of things that are true and good and beautiful. Okay, sorry, let me stay with truth. Um, the propaganda that's presented today comes through so many forms in the media, so much of it on the internet. And I talked yesterday about how seductive, clever, intimidating, and pervasive the propaganda is. It's seductive. It's presented in such clear, in ways that just draw you in. It's so clever, but it's a lie. It's intimidating. It makes you feel like I must be something wrong with me if I actually believe the opposite. And it's pervasive. It's going to come at you in every commercial, every movie, every TV show. It's going to have their uh, the typical thing that they need to have showing up that's part of the, uh, the politically correct thing that is going to start washing over and sewing into kids' lives, into minds, so that we, we're numb to it. And we don't know how to resist it. It seems to be everywhere. And so what is the nature of truth? How do we understand truth? I'm going to give you five meanings of truth. Five meanings of truth. Truth as essence, truth as aletheia, or truth that is self-disclosing, truth as correspondence, that's the correspondence theory of truth, truth as transforming union, that's the personal nature of truth, and truth as mystery. Truth has all of these facets has all these facets. Truth is essence. That is, what is true is the identity of things. It's that which makes, that. that's what you identify as the reality of something, is its truth. And that's the one that has the closest connection, connecting point to the scientific mode of understanding where it's all about observation and it's about a thing in itself over there. And so in order for us to uphold the objective nature of truth, truth is having something to do with the essence of things, then the essence of things aren't just what I say they are. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of warding off the rampant relativism, the dictatorship of relativism, as, as um, Pope Benedict put it, the dictatorship of relativism that is so present today. And so we can counter that by talking about truth as objective. It, there really is a reality there. But we have to go beyond that. There's far more to truth than its objective or essential, uh, the, the, the quality of its being the essential nature of something. Truth also discloses itself. Truth by its very, the, the reality by its nature manifests itself. And that's important for us to know. Because as a reality manifests itself, we begin to interact with it. And as we begin to interact with it, we begin to have a dialogue. Or in classical model of education, it's called dialectic. And in a dialectic, it is a dialogical opportunity to come to a deeper understanding of the essence of things. And it proceeds by way of a thesis, a, an antithesis leading to a synthesis. So essentially, there's an idea that's presented, and then the counterpoint is proposed, just the opposite. And so you put into question the thesis, that which is presented as true, and then through that dialogue, you come to realize, no, that's not actually correct. Wait a minute, let me propose the opposite here. And then that opposite idea is going to act in tension with it, and through this dialectical process, it'll yield a more refined insight. I'll have greater clarity about the essence of this thing that is real. So as truth is disclosing itself, it engages me to identify a thesis, test that with an antithesis, put it into question, and then let lead to a deeper 
understanding a synthesis. Okay, that sounds pretty philosophical. Well, let's make it theological. Let's talk about how this actually shows up in our Catholic Christian theological history. And so in the history of theology, you have what's called the three ways. You have the via positiva, the via negativa, and the via eminentiae. I told you, you're going to have to kind of strap up, buckle up here, put on your hat, your thinking cap, because we're going to go a little bit deeper here. And this idea that there's a in the realm of theology, in the realm of talk about God, we're now going to move beyond the realm of created things. Well, now we have to find a way to talk about an infinite reality when we are bound by finite realities of time and space, this finite world in which we live. And yet there's a way in which we also have a, an intuition, a sensitivity to the infinite to that which is boundless. And so this gets translated into a way of talking about God that is the via positiva, via negativa, in the via eminentiae. Okay, what does that look like? Well, the via positiva is a positive statement about God. God is good. Do you believe that? Is that correct? Is that the truth about God, that God is good? Well, the answer would be yes, of course, God is good. When we think about God as one who is good, we think about God as one who cares, the, the God who, has, uh, who sees us, who reaches out to us with fidelity, who offers us good things. Well, what's the antithesis to that? And why would that shine any light on the understanding of God is good? Well, what the theological tradition also says is God is not good. Well, what does that mean? I'll tell you in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. God is good, via positiva. I said that this then leads to further insight into God's goodness by proposing the antithesis that God is good, which is God is not good. And so here we are in this dialectical process. We now have the via negativa. Well, what are we saying? How could God is not good add anything to the statement that God is good? Well, the via negativa is based on the idea that anything that you can say about God as connected to the created world is actually more untrue than true. That the similarity, this is the way that the, the principle is, is spoken about theologically, the similarity that exists between the created world and the uncreated world, between creatures and the creator, the similarity is smaller than the difference that exists between the created world and the uncreated world, between the creature and the creator. So that it is, as much as it's true to say God is good, it's actually more true to say God is not good. Well, in what sense? Well, it's not saying that God is bad, to say that God is not good isn't to say that God is bad. It's to say that the human concept of goodness is finite. The infinite goodness of God infinitely surpasses the finite concept of goodness that you have in your mind. So that when you say God is good and you are contained by your limited finite capacity to understand the essence of goodness, God's goodness is infinitely beyond that concept of goodness. And because that distance between the finite and the infinite is infinite, it's actually truer to say, if you're talking about your concept of goodness, God is not good. If you're talking about that kind of goodness, but we're not done yet because you don't let the antithesis just sit there. You let it stay in this life-giving tension that yields a synthesis. Remember, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You have the statement, you have the opposite, and then you have a resolution that surpasses. And so we get to the surpassing statement, the via eminentiae, the via positiva, gives way to the via negativa, which gives way to the via eminentiae, the way that is the overcoming, the surpassing, the eminent way, which says that, yeah, 
it's true that God is good. It's even more true that God is not good if you're talking about human goodness. But what is eminently true is that God, in his goodness, surpasses in an infinite way any understanding you have of his goodness. It far surpasses the conception you have of God's goodness. And so God is surpassingly good, eminently good. He is infinitely good. And so what does that do? What does that do for our lives? Right In our lives, boy, doesn't that open things up? Doesn't that open up your mind to say, I think we take it too blithely when we say God is good. All the time, all the time, God is good. You have no idea what you're saying when you say that God is good because his goodness is so far beyond what you could even bring to expression. You will be stunned into silence before the goodness that is God. And so that's a second meaning of truth. By the way, there are five. (laughs) I'm just... God. So when we say that truth is objective, yeah, it gets at the essence of things, but truth also discloses itself. And that means you have to be ready for a further disclosure, a deeper disclosure, uh, a, a more profound disclosure, uh, a disclosure that takes you beyond your own understanding of what you thought was correct. There are levels of truth. There are levels to the meaning of the truthfulness of a particular truth that goes far beyond what you imagine. Where do we learn that? Who teaches that, right? That's the kind of thing that you'll come into contact with in a liberal arts education, is dialectical, teaching you to think in a dialectical method. But there's more. What's the more? Well, let's go to the correspondence level of truth. So truth is what is. It's the essence of things. Truth discloses itself. Truth also is the correspondence that exists between the thing in itself and the idea in my mind. Okay, did you say, let me say that again, because this is a, a whole theory of the human being and of knowledge. It's called epistemology. That there is a correspondence that exists between the thing in itself and my mind. And very specifically, the idea that exists in my mind about that thing. Okay, what are we getting at here? What we're getting at is anthropology, a conception of the human being. And part of that is a conception of the mind of man. The way that Aquinas would put it in accord all the way back to Aristotle is that the proper object of the mind is that which is. The proper object of the mind is being. And so your mind was made for things. And when we say the mind was made for things, it means that when you look out at a tree, that reality of that thing, that matter, which is a tree, there's a form, there is a, uh, there is a, uh, a reality about that tree that gathers the, the, the elements of the matter into a structure that my mind is able to draw out, the word is abstract, I can draw out from that reality that's manifested in from me, it's idea. There's an idea that my mind, the form of this thing that is in front of me, the essential structure of it, as it gathers together these elements, I'm able to draw the idea out into my mind because my mind was made by God for his creation. So my mind, this idea in my mind, corresponds to the thing that's out there. Does this make sense? So epistemology is about learning, how do I know that I know something? How do I know that the idea I have in my mind is corresponding to that thing in the world? And it's through that idea in my mind that I come to know what that thing is that is in the world. Well, why is this important for, let's just say, our life in faith? I'm just going to jump to it. Um, Well, let's take a look at the concept of paradox, What is a paradox? Well, a paradox is when you're facing a reality and you realize that 
if I'm going to hold in my mind this idea about that reality, I can't at the same time hold in my mind this other idea about that reality because they are in uh, conflict. They are fundamentally in disagreement with each other. And so it has to be one or the other. A paradox is when if you uphold only one to the extent that you leave the other away, you put you cast the other way and reject it, or uh, or instead, the only way to understand that reality is to uphold both ideas at the same time, instead of saying, I have to pick one and reject the other. So for instance, being a follower of Christ, being a follower of Christ, is that me being entirely obedient, even to the standpoint that I become a slave of Christ? Or is following Christ my greatest freedom in life? Following Jesus Christ, is that my greatest freedom or is that my greatest slavery? And you're going to be like, wait a minute, it's actually both. You know, often on, on the program, I'll say, is it this or is it that? And I say both, and I bring up the reality that so much of our faith is rooted in paradoxes, not in things that are fundamentally conflictual or disagree, but you won't understand the full nature of something if you focus only on one facet of it. So that idea of being a follower of Christ is so rich that I'll have to circle around it. I will have to orbit this reality as a way of coming into contact with truths about it that seem to be in conflict, but actually are not properly understood if I hold them as being fundamentally disagreeing. Instead, I have to hold them both together. And this is all through Catholic theology. This is all through Catholic theology, and not just in matters of discipleship, right? Like um, the sisters and brothers who make consecrated vows of uh, obedience. And you ask them, in being obedient, are you surrendering your freedom or are you discovering freedom? And they will say, yes. And it will say, um, when, were you, when are you most spontaneous? When are you most likely to be spontaneous in your own following of the Lord? Well, it's when I'm most radically obedient to the call that the God, the Lord has in my life. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense unless you are in relationship with that reality. That actually leads me to the fourth meaning of truth, which I'll talk about in just a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. Okay, so we're unfolding this reality of truth, right? Are you getting just how rich this idea of truth is in classical philosophy and, frankly, Catholic theology, right? Just as we unfold the meaning of truth, it's so much more than just give me the facts. It is what it is. And truth is objective and not uh, not relative, right? No, truth is the essence of what is real, the essence of the object, but truth also is that which discloses itself. It has a, a coming out into the open dimension of itself, and when it comes out into the open, we can come to penetrate more fully the appearances and through a dialectical method, we can then seek to bring a greater correspondence between that which is showing up, the, the essence of something manifesting itself and its appearances, in these ideas that then, the idea that we continue to mature in our minds, that, wow, there's a paradox that we can have more than one facet of a reality that we have to hold up at the same time. And we have to hold both of them if, in fact, we're going to understand the reality that is being presented to us. This points to the next dimension of truth, which is the personal dimension of truth, the dimension of truth that is a transforming union. Now, let's ponder that for a second, that there's a transforming union dimension to truth, that you do not know the truth until that truth 
Remember that idea that the mind has been able to abstract out of the form, that mind is receptive to the idea that it draws from the form, the, the, the essence of the thing that is in front of you, that when you draw in the idea of things into your mind, guess what? It impacts how you see, how you relate, and how you live in this world. John Paul II's language, truth is inserted into consciousness and gives rise to an attitude. Truth sinks into the heart and blossoms forth in how we live. Wow. All of a sudden, we don't know the truth unless we are in relationship with, a union with, the reality that we are knowing. So just to give you some for instances, if you contemplate certain truths, they're going to have a good impact on your life. If you contemplate a beautiful object, if you contemplate a beautiful flower, a beautiful sunset, you just take it in, the form, the essence, the reality of that is showing up in front of you, that's disclosing itself, you welcome that into your life, it's going to make you breathe easier, breathe fresher. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to come alive because the truth has sunk into your life. What if you ponder the reality of purity, modesty, chastity? You, um, you contemplate these ideas, these concepts, and, and you take in content. You take in uh, presentations, whether it's written or other, other manifestations of, of these uh, realities into your life. They're going to soak into you, and you're going to become a living manifestation of these truths. These truths will come alive in you. Well, the most profound, well, you, you'll guess, well, by the way, you see this in relationships, right? Where not only do you show up, but you're, if you are in a loving relationship with your spouse, that also shows up when you show up at a party. <laughs> versus if you're in a fight, right? That's kind of a cutesy example, but over the long haul, over the course of a relationship where there's a richness of interaction, where there is a loving coming to know each other, knowing the truth and welcoming that person into your life, the more deeply you know them and love them and you welcome them into your life, the more deeply they impact you and the more deeply that they're going to show up in you. Well, that's true with Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the truth. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, who is Jesus as the truth? Is he the Savior, Lord, Son of God? Is he Son of Man? Is he Son of Mary? Is he Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Lamb of God, Lion of Judah, First, Last, Alpha, Omega? Yeah, all of the above. Remember we talked about those facets of the diamond? How about the way in which you come to know Jesus is related to the way in which he is coming close to you. When he comes close to you to save you, to set you free from bondage to, as a redeemer, when he comes to ransom you from sin and death, that relationship is going to impact how you know Jesus. When he comes to you as the bridegroom and you're his bride, that's another facet to your relationship. You won't know anything about Jesus's love for you as a bridegroom unless you are open to allow him to reveal himself, to communicate himself to you as that bridegroom. And it's in that transforming union that you can then speak to that. What about Lord? Jesus as Lord, as King of Kings over your life. Do you know what that's like to experience his protection, his covering over you? but then also the lordly demands on your life. You won't know these things unless you're in union with them. You see, so there's a way in which truth is that which personally transforms us through the union we have with that truth. Truth is that which manifests itself in our lives as a result of that union. And so whatever ideas we contemplate, Whatever realities we make the principal focus of our attention, we give ourselves over to thinking, contemplating, pondering, holding these things present in our minds, they're going to shape and mold us, right? So many people, they're, what they're worried about in life are things that they're holding in their minds and their imaginations as, as if they're realities when they're not. 
They're just potential realities. Or when someone gives themselves, when someone gives himself or herself over to a sin, and it becomes a habitual sin, and it becomes a sin that has a level of addictive quality and a bondage in their lives, well, guess what? That begins to manifest itself in their lives, whether it's through lust, anger, greed, jealousy, envy. All these factors are going to show up, selfishness, pride, condescension, arrogance. Oh, pick, pick a sin. When someone gives themselves over to that sin, that sin begins to manifest itself in their lives because of that union that is transformative in a broken way, but it's still a transformative union that comes from that sin. So, wow, is this important to know? Yeah, this is really powerful stuff. Stuff that's encountered in a classical way of understanding the human being, understanding the nature of knowledge, the nature of how we are to live, uh, the nature of truth and beauty and goodness. Um, and I know, I know, I, I'm aware now that I had said I was going to get through truth and beauty and goodness and ultimately freedom, and I'm still on truth. <laughs> I've got two minutes left. So I'm going to cover the last element, the last of these five ways of understanding truth. Truth is what the essence of what is objective, truth as that which manifests itself, truth as that which corresponds between the world and the idea we have in our minds, truth as that which transforms through that correspondence, there's actually a transforming union, there's a personalization of the truth. Well, ultimately, truth is a mystery. And when we say that, what do we mean? Well, if you've listened to Sound Insight through the years, you know that a theological mystery, a mystery as it relates to God and the ultimate meaning of things, is not like a mystery that you see on television. When you have a detective show, at the beginning there's a mystery. The mystery is who done it. And over the course of the show, they gain more information, and the more information they gain, the mystery diminishes until at the end, the final reality is revealed and the truth is uh, the mystery is all gone. So the more information you get, the more correct information you get, the more the mystery diminishes. That's at a human level. Well, the reverse is the case when it comes to God. When it comes to God's revealed truth, when it comes to any of the truths of our faith, these are the mysteries of faith, any of these um, articles of faith that are part of the creed, they are... Um, they are doorways to the mystery of God. The ultimate reality of all realities is the mystery of God. And a mystery, in a theological sense, is that which is known, but known in such a way that we recognize the in infinity, the infinite quality of that which we are knowing, such that the more we come to know in truth the depths of the reality of God, the more the mystery increases. Did you hear that? It's not that the more you come to know about God, the more the mystery diminishes until one day God will no longer be a mystery. No, the more you come to know who God is, the more that you'll come to know that God is beyond your capacity to fully know because God is infinite and you are finite. And so in the end, any particular truth about the ultimate reality of things points to a mysterious dimension, the dimension that goes beyond our capacity to comprehend. And so uh, there, there you go. There's the five different uh, uh, facets or manifestations of that reality, which is truth. Well, tomorrow, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this theme because it's the Feast of Our Lady of Victory, the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. So that's going to be a special theme for me tomorrow. And then Friday, I'm with Kerry on a Faith and Family Friday. I will come back to this theme, though. God bless.